The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization had an immediate effect on abortion access, but its consequences could extend to many other aspects of reproductive health care, given its implications for state protection of what's called potential life. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kimberly Mutcherson, co-dean and a professor of law at Rutgers Law School. As part of the journal series on the fundamentals of health law, Professor Mutcherson has written a perspective article about regulating reproductive medicine after Dobbs. Professor Mutcherson, could you explain the concept of potential life and how it was interpreted in the major abortion-related cases before this one, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So Roe versus Wade was obviously the landmark case that was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 that determined that the U.S. Constitution includes protection for a right to terminate a pregnancy. And in that opinion, the court said a few things that were really interesting. One, they said that a fetus is not a constitutional person, but they also said that states have an interest in potential life. They didn't really define what they meant by potential life. I think we were supposed to assume that they meant a fetus. But that is language that has continued to be used in court cases since then that focus on the question of abortion. And so now we're in this space where that language of potential life has an opportunity to be much more expansive than it was in the past. So what are the implications of the Dobbs decision for how states can regulate issues related to potential life? So the important thing about Dobbs is that it basically gave back to the states the question of abortion, which means we could have 50 laws in 50 different states with different rules about who can have an abortion, when they can have an abortion, who can perform an abortion, really sort of all over the map, potentially. But the other thing that the court did by throwing away Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is they threw away this sense that Yes, the state might have an interest in potential life or does have an interest in potential life, but there are certain points in a pregnancy when that interest sort of comes to full fruition. And so let me explain what I mean by that. In Roe versus Wade, the court said we can regulate abortion or states can regulate abortion, but there are limits on how they regulate. In the first trimester, they basically can't regulate at all. In the second trimester, they can regulate in order to protect women's health. And in the third trimester, because the state's interest in potential life at that point is so significant, the state can go so far as to ban abortion, but there has to be an exception for the life or health of the pregnant woman. And so in Roe, what you might say is that the state's interest in potential life really kicks in during the third trimester or basically at the point of viability. But even that state interest in potential life can't outweigh a woman's life or a woman's health. Then we get to Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, which is a major rollback of the abortion right that the court found in 1973 in Roe versus Wade. And in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court said, we have not been giving enough weight to the state's interest in potential life. And so now we want to really give more heft to that. And they said, first of all, that states have an interest in potential life from the moment that a pregnancy begins. And so that really sort of shifted the landscape. And then the second thing that they said was they reinforced that, yes, a state can go so far as to ban abortion in the third trimester, but there still has to be an exception for the life or health of the pregnant woman. So Roe and Casey are no longer good law. They have been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And so we're sort of rebuilding what this issue of potential life means. And the states get to decide it by themselves now. And really the thing that's going to determine how broad that interest is, is going to be state constitutions rather than the federal constitution. So aside from abortion, what kinds of medical procedures and situations might be affected by different states' determinations of when life and personhood begin? So one thing that we've seen already in this context is how physicians and other healthcare providers are able to manage miscarriages. So if the state has this very significant interest in potential life, or a state decides that it has this very significant interest in potential life, then at what point and in what way can miscarriages be managed in a particular jurisdiction? And we've heard some really horrible stories in the press so far about healthcare providers not being sure when they can, for instance, offer an abortion, when they know that a woman is miscarrying. Can they offer an abortion immediately? Do they have to wait until there is no fetal cardiac activity? Are they required to provide an abortion if there is a risk to the woman's life or health? None of that is really clear right now. The second area in which we can imagine what it would mean to expand potential life is the fertility industry. So we in the United States have a fairly robust industry of what I call the baby business, the business of making babies. And as a consequence of that, we have hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos in this country, which a lot of people think of as potential life. Given the right set of circumstances, those embryos could go on and become children. And so if a state decides that its interest in potential life extends to embryos, then we're going to start raising other sorts of questions. One, for instance, might be, well, if a set of parents who create or potential parents who created an embryo decide that they don't want to use it, what happens with that embryo? And the world we live in now, people can decide to give that embryo to others to use. They can decide to have the embryo destroyed. They can decide to donate that embryo to research, or they can decide to let it sit frozen in perpetuity as long as they're willing to pay for that. But if a state decides it has this deep interest in potential life that extends to embryos, well, then why couldn't a state say, well, if you're not going to use it, you've basically abandoned this potential life. You've abandoned this potential child. And when a child gets abandoned, the state steps in. Why is this any different from somebody dropping an infant off at a firehouse or at a hospital because they don't want to care for that baby? And so you can imagine a state that says, we're going to start taking those embryos and we're going to find homes from them. We're going to find people who want to do IVF and who want to have a baby, and we're going to offer these embryos to them. You also say in your article that the designation of potential life could conceivably be extended to a fertilized egg, which would affect certain contraceptive methods. So what would that mean? Sometimes when I talk about these things, people think, oh, that's so far-fetched. It couldn't possibly be. But if you think back to the Hobby Lobby case, which was a case that the Supreme Court decided about the Affordable Care Act, and the issue in Hobby Lobby was the question of whether a company could be required, as they were under the Affordable Care Act, to provide certain types of birth control or to provide insurance that would provide certain types of birth control. And what Hobby Lobby said in that case was that they were not comfortable 
paying for women, for instance, to get IUDs or Plan B because anything that they perceived had the risk of potentially keeping a fertilized egg from implanting was basically an abortion and they didn't have to support that. So in a world in which a state decided that life begins at the moment that sperm meets egg and you have a fertilized egg, then anything that blocks that fertilized egg from the opportunity to implant in a uterus should be no different than an abortion. So a state could say, we're not going to allow you to use IUDs, or at least try to say, we're not going to allow you to use IUDs in our state. We're not going to allow for plan B to be sold in our state, because as far as we're concerned, those are things that interfere or that terminate potential life. Finally, how could state policies related to potential life and the threat of legal action in the area affect the practice of reproductive medicine and the doctor-patient relationship more broadly? Well, again, if we think about one, when we think about, as I already said, in, in the miscarriage context, if you're a healthcare provider and you would normally say to somebody who's miscarrying, here are the options that I have available to you, but you say, "Ugh, I'm not sure in this state that I can now provide all those options to you. Well, then you're sort of stuck between what is it that I'm supposed to do because it's the standard of care and this is how I should be practicing medicine versus what do I have to do because I think the law tells me that I can't provide the full spectrum of services that I think I should be providing here as a physician or a healthcare provider. So that's one issue. In the other context, in the assisted reproduction context, now you have to sort of have these conversations with your patients that might feel or look a little bit different than they did before. So maybe the idea of being able to keep frozen embryos in perpetuity, you can no longer do that or you can no longer donate them. So as you're doing informed consent with your patients, you'd have to say, well, how would you feel if you didn't want to use these embryos anymore. You already had two or three kids and you've got seven embryos left over. And the state swooped in and said, we're going to take those seven embryos. Suddenly we'd have to plant that seed for people um, to be thinking about. Another thing in the context of assisted reproduction is the opportunity for selective reduction. So sometimes people who are seeking pregnancy through assisted reproduction become what I call too pregnant. And so you become pregnant and you're going to have triplets or quads or quints, far more babies than you were anticipating, and a number of babies that's actually dangerous for you to carry, both for you as a pregnant person and for the babies themselves. In the world we live in now, a provider could say to you, well, if you get too pregnant or if you are too pregnant, we can do a selective reduction. So we can terminate some of those fetuses very, very early in the pregnancy and allow the pregnancy to continue. So instead of having four, you have two. Instead of having two, maybe you have one. Safer for everybody involved. But a state could say, actually, you cannot do that any longer. So it used to be under Roe and Casey that a state could not make pre-viability abortions illegal. That's out the window now. So a state could say, as Oklahoma has, that abortion is illegal from the moment of fertilization no more selective reduction. So that's a conversation that a fertility provider would have to have with a patient where you say, listen, maybe we're gonna transfer uh, fewer embryos because we really want to avoid that risk. Or if you do become pregnant with too many, I would have to send you out of state in order to do a selective reduction. 
And that really changes the dynamic of the conversations between healthcare providers and their patients and what it means to provide informed consent. Thank you, Professor Murchison.